Hey, good evening. Is it a good evening or what? Everybody's raring to go here. It's uh, We're going to start up one minute early. Can you believe that? Hey, have we uh, made no. the great announcement? No. We didn't do that last week. No. And we didn't do it two weeks before because I wanted you to be here. Yeah, Zach right. wanted me to make a great announcement when he wasn't here, and I said I wasn't going to do that. Huh? <laughs> Weeks. Yeah. And I blew it last week. Yeah, blame him. So, Zach, can you stand up and tell us yeah. news? Yeah. Good yeah. news. Rebecca's pregnant. Second one. Okay. That's right. He's he's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Got a question for you. Has any people ever heard the voice of God and lived? That's that's out of Deuteronomy, chapter four, verse thirty-three. Well, well, they did. Um, what if God never spoke? Good one. Thank you. Don't have to answer that. How do we know anything? <laughs> How do we know anything? <laughs> How do we speak a God who we haven't even seen? Now, the true living God he is not seen, but He's been heard. And He reveals Himself. God is a God of mercy in letting people hear Him. And he has spoken. I, I, I keep thinking every once in a while, what if God never spoke? And the thing is, is that if he if he hadn't of, makes you wonder where or what what would we be doing right now? What would we be thinking as far as if there was any such thing as religion, which there always are religions? <laughs> That's right. So anyway, it is a uh, it's a privilege to uh, actually gather around God, the one true God and His Word, and talk about mm-hmm. His things. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day, uh, another day that You have given us and what a gift it is. And uh, Father, we uh, again just come worshiping You, we want to fall at your feet and just adore you, recognizing that you are the beautiful one. You are the sovereign one, the holy one, and the one that we want to worship for eternity. And you've already given us a, a sense of a, a glimpse of who you are, and it's through the person of Christ. And we all gather with the same kind of thought, with Christ being the very one that's uh, taken us and brought us into your kingdom. And we thank you for that. What a common privilege it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have been in Romans 13. And uh, we when we started this whole big section back in chapter 12, it dealt with practice, putting 
Christianity, putting Scripture, putting the truth into our lives, actually making it walk, practice. And we looked at an argument um, that Paul put forth in verse uh, 8 and going through verse 10, which was encouraging Christians to fulfill all the commandments. And it's it's really the question of love there as the fulfillment of the law. Now, Paul introduces us into another argument, so we go into another little subsection from um, 11 through 14. And it's a passage that's mentioned as, at least uh, the way Martin Lloyd-Jones terms it as, a passage of eloquence. Great eloquence here when you read through it. And it definitely caught the attention of Augustine, which we talked about last week. This was a section that uh, God used to convert him. As he read it, it just impacted him and changed his life like that because he had come from a very wanton lifestyle like um, many people uh, did at his time and uh, still do in our time. But in this argument that he produces here, um, starting at verse 11, we're going to see two parts, again, right off the bat, and it's doctrine and practice. And Paul always puts doctrine and practice together. He never tells us to do something without motivation or without doctrine. And right in verse 11 where he says, and do this, do this. There's an action. Knowing the time, now it is high time to awake out of sleep. So we're to awake out of sleep. But what is even the doctrine there? Or you can say a motivation. It's the time. And we'll, we'll get into explaining what he means by that time. But know the time. And the practice is awake out of sleep. And he always gives these qualifications. There's practice or application. We can That's the same thing, putting it into action. Uh, that's all over the epistles, but it's always with the motivation. Never ever does Paul ever put out a command or conduct and behavior where they are by themselves. Somewhere they're very near will be a qualification of uh, how we do this. So there's never a scripture uh, passage that says, uh, here's your conduct, and it doesn't discuss doctrine in in some manner or form somewhere they're close. Uh, Our actions that we do are based upon knowledge. We, we just don't want to have knowledge by itself, but we don't want to have actions by themselves. They, they go hand in hand, both together. And that's how Paul uh, addresses those issues all the way through the epistles here in Romans, uh, and especially at the heart of uh, this section, 12, 13, 14. Uh, always association there. there there's an intermixture with uh, these two types of thoughts. Faith and works. You can put it that way. Or doctrine and practice. Now, as we are Christians, did we do things to become Christians? No. Because that would be works, wouldn't it? But we live like this because we are Christians. We do those things because we already are the Reformation uh, it rescued that thought back from a works-based salvation. The Reformation said justification by faith alone. That meant no works added. It was 
faith in Christ, where there was a works salvation. And so they, they fought for that, and they battled for that, and that is precious. That's what we believe in. You know, it's, it's the fact that, hey, there's nothing we can do. But now that we are Christians, here's what we do. Now, if we can get this fact down, which we, we do, we will go away from extreme dangers. And you can go one way too far or another way too far. One way is called antinomianism. Anybody want to give me an idea what that is? Against the law. Aha. Uh-huh. Anti. Against. Right? And nomianism or namas is law. So, against the law. There's no law. That's, that's the way they would view it. Um, there's no law at all. Um, the person who believes this is not concerned with conduct. It doesn't matter how he lives. And this kind of thought has caused all sorts of turmoil all throughout church history. And one once, when one gets that kind of idea, they're only concerned about doctrine. Now, we talk about doctrine here a lot, and we hold it up high, don't we? But if it's all doctrine and no living, it's no good. And what happens is that people can become very intellectual, know a lot of things, concerned about doctrine. They can be the most orthodox that can possibly be, but they contradict what they believe by not being able, not living it. And uh, it, and it doesn't matter to them. Uh, they have no evidence of sanctification because they don't believe in it. <laughs> they can discuss the theology of sanctification, but it's not part of their lives. And I will tell you that Calvinists have always had a danger of going into antinomianism. And there have been some that are that way. Um, Or sometimes it's misunderstood that that's what they believe, and that it would be antinomianism, but that's far from the truth. The the Reformers would not have uh, believed that whatsoever. But there has been a charge against Calvinism in that sense, whether it be true or not, there is a certain amount of validity to those charges sometimes, though. Uh, there's another group, um, if we're talking about antinomianism, there would be the group that would be called believism. Or today, I think we've heard of easy believism. But there was a believism that was known back in the 1700s as Sandemanianism, which is really the same thing. And what they believed in is that, uh, hey, no matter, no matter whether you have the feelings of salvation or not, it doesn't matter. Because if you just believe in the Lord Jesus, then you're saved. And so don't worry about the feelings. Now, people can take feelings and go way too far with them. But feelings, fact, faith, feelings are a part of a salvation experience. Uh, so feelings do come into play. They're not the number one uh, uh, aspect of salvation, but it, it does play a key role. And so they say, as long as you just believe in Jesus, uh, that's that's all it is. You confess that Jesus is Lord, and that's it. That's that's believism, but you can see what it is. They're saying, um, if you just take it by faith, take it by faith, sounds good, but the lives never show it. So, therefore, whether one looks like it or not, doesn't matter. If you've said that you believe in the Lord, then you're okay. Then there is 
mysticism in Christianity. And mysticism is kind of on the the other approach. It says feelings do matter. So they take this extreme, and it doesn't matter what you believe. <laughs> the doctrine doesn't matter. It's how much you you believe or uh, how much you feel. The experience that you have is everything. And if you have this experience, then it's real. Well, the next one would be the phenomena. And this would be uh, a preoccupation with certain things. Uh, there's a problem in Corinth. And they were prideful about all the gifts that they had, and they were bragging about those. They weren't uh, doing it in a way that was um, serving the rest of the community. They were showing what they had. They're consumed with the gifts, you know, one certain thing. So what it is, is all of these things can have some truth to it, but they go to an extreme edge. The other extreme, all this is like uh, falls under the line of antinomianism. There's really no living it out. It's, just, it's a matter of what you feel or what you don't feel or what you have said, and uh, so therefore you're a Christian and uh, we're not under the law anymore. The other one is legalism from antinomianism to legalism. And that's pretty easy to figure out. Um, Life and living, that's what matters. Maybe not necessarily doctrine, or maybe so, but Paul keeps a balance. And so Paul doesn't want us to go from one end of the pendulum or it swings on the other end. And... uh, what we have to realize is that there is conduct and behavior which are very important, but they always have the motives to them too, or the the, the doctrine. So how are we to live the Christian life? Well, Paul has been saying it here in chapter 12, chapter 13, and on in through 14. Did Paul ever teach the victorious Christian life? How many have ever heard of that? The victorious Christian life. <laughs> No, Paul never taught that. He said, what? Can't we have victory? Well, we certainly do. We have victory. Our victory is in Jesus Christ, right? This is our victory, our faith in Him. You know, that's biblical there. But when we use this term, the victorious Christian life, it teaches that, okay, some people are real miserable in their Christian life because they have failed, they're into some particular sin, they have some kind of hang-up, it could be using drugs. It could be drinking. It could be this and that. You know, one sin to another. You know, uh, pornography, whatever. You know, just go on and on and on. And they're they're not living that victorious Christian life. So they need to be delivered. And so to live this victorious Christian life, one would ask, "Do you want a victorious Christian life?" <laughs> and of course, what pe- what are people going to say? Well, of course, yes, right. So what they try to do is bring them to a crisis. You know, do you want a victorious life? Well, if you get them that point, it's that well, you brought them to the crisis. Well, if you want this kind of life, you can have it now. Here, you can have this. Here's how you do this. You can get a complete deliverance. We've got the secret. <laughs> Does this usually involve your checkbook? 
<laughs> Good point. What's the motive here, right? Uh, I'm sure they ha- at these conferences they probably uh, charge. I know back in uh, I know Martin Lloyd Jones spoke about it a lot, and I imagine Janice, you've read that in, in the reading of his, and he had to confront it quite a bit. Jerry Packer was working with him at uh, at the time. I think it was in the 50s and 60s. This was big over in England. We've had it here in America off and on. There's been times of that, you know. And it it sounds like a legitimate thing. Who doesn't want a victorious Christian life? The only thing is, if you're a Christian. You already have victory. So I have this sin. Well, everybody does. What do you do with the sin? You cut it off. There are no secrets. Everybody's trying to get secrets, a shortcut to it. And the fact of the matter is, Paul says, here's what Christ did for you, and here's what Christ is going to do. He's going to come back. Now, here's what you do now. People, rather than cutting the sin off, say, well, i got this problem, I just can't get over it, you know, and I'm hooked on it so bad, and you don't understand. Paul says, stop it. <laughs> Cut it off. Quit. Yeah, Bob. Dennis, would you um, comment uh, in light of Romans 8.37 in, in, in the theme that you're going with here? I just kind of wanted to hear... Uh, Oh, since we're talking about that, that's a good verse. Yeah, I think uh, Lloyd Jones mentioned this one, and he used, uh, I think, uh, quite a section on on that verse right there. Yeah. It says, "Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are. We already are there." That's that Nike word, right? Cooper yeah. Nakao. Cooper <clears throat> over. Yeah. And Nike dealing with victory uh-huh. or conquer. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, we're more than conquerors. Super conquerors. Super conquerors, wow, through him who loved us. So that is what we already are. We need to see who Christ is. We need to see who we are. And in light of all that and what he has done, what he's going to do, what he's doing now, that is how we beat sin. Paul says it over and over and over. And we have all these little secret things of how we're going to beat these sins. People say, well, you don't know the background that I came from. And you know, they'll use excuses and such. And Man, the answer is right here. Well, well, it's in the culture that we live in now, you know, in the times. And and Paul's going to talk about the times. He's going to use that word right in verse 11. (laughs) And there's no little secret into it. It's, It's getting it into Scripture and putting it into action. And whenever you get into complete deliverance right now, people want another shortcut. It, the, the Scripture doesn't work. There's something else there. I was, I've was i been counseling with a guy for, my goodness, over 20 years. And somebody wanted him to go to their deal that they were doing, you know, and he was struggling with particular sins, whatever, you know. We all do. We battle with sin. And... He said, well, uh, you've gone to that church. What's it done for you? <laughs> and he said, well, this, it's, they teach doctrine there. They teach about Christ and the glory of God. He says, well, obviously it's not working. So you need to try, some, you need to try this. And um, he immediately knew that, hey, something's not right about this guy saying what he's saying on this. Uh, because the Scripture, the theology starts with God. It doesn't start with self. So all these self-help things that people are offering, what is it? Well, there's a crisis there. Okay. Granted, it maybe it's a, it's a terrible sin they're dealing with or sins. 
But the theology starts with God, not self. And the Bible never starts with happiness either. What can I do? How can I do this to make myself happy? Well, God, really, to be honest with you, did not put us here just to be happy. <laughs> I, I know that's a surprise to you here. <laughs> Was Christianity a system designed to make us happy? Well, the cults do that pretty good. They can make people feel real welcome and feel happy what they're doing, but Christianity was not necessarily designed just for comforts. You know, we have comfort in Christ, and yeah, we do have our comforts. We do. I'm not eliminating all that, but I'm just saying life and ease isn't what the Christian life is about. That's what people are wanting. They're wanting the shortcut. Philippians 1.29 says that we have been granted suffering for His sake. Wow, does that go against the grain? Whoa, 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 whoa. That section of my Bible comes out. Oh, you just throw that away, right? <laughs> Thomas Jefferson over here. Ephesians comes out too, by the way. The other word I noticed is missing a lot in Easy. Easy. And yeah. I never read where it says this will be easy. It's, it's not easy, is it? <laughs> but at the same time, Christ says, Take my yoke, right? Put my yoke upon you. And and he'll give us rest. We rest in Christ. Even though there you know, our burdens here, they're gonna be light if we let him control us. Momentary affliction, right? Now, I know, you know, that goes against the grain of um, what people would would like today, but uh, Scripture does not teach all you have to do is just surrender and believe and take it by faith and the rest of your life it will be happiness. 129. You know what? I'm going to make a real bold uh, assessment here. Paul sometimes uses fear as a motivation for sanctification. You say, what? Fear? Yeah. Chapter 13. Um, the first seven verses is dealing with government. You remember we dealt with that section? And it's there's an argument of fear there. He says, if you don't do what is obedience here, there's going to be judgment. It says right in verse 2, Therefore, who resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. There will be judgment coming to you. Um, and, and they say, well, really, government rulers, they're not a terror to, do, to good works, but, but to evil. Uh, I think in verse 5, Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So Paul actually used fear to motivate his readers into sanctification. If you resist those powers, then you're going to put yourself under judgment. So Paul is building up arguments here. He's reasoning with his readers, and he's realizing he's saying, "Hey, realize what you're doing here. You have to face God's judgment, and there is a judgment even for Christians, not for our sins." but it's uh, dealing with rewards. 
Our sins have been judged, but at the same time, what are we doing with the life that God has given? So we have wrath and conscience sake there. What, what are we doing before we get into this text here? We're just saying there's always a balance, and Paul is saying there's always a motivation, whether it be fear or whether it be the... Usually it's that Christ is coming back. And that should be quite a motivation. We know He's coming back. Or it can be, here's what He's done. What were the first 11 chapters of Romans, basically? Doctrine. Here's what God has done in your salvation. That's an incredible work to be justified by faith and and, uh, saved by grace and chosen by Him. All of those words uh, and topics that we love so much. And now he's telling us, okay, here's how you live the Christian life. It's no secret. Paul just puts it forth and says, here's how you do it. I don't know why it has to be so complicated for people. You know, Yeah, we might not want uh, to get rid of that sin uh, as quick as we maybe would kind of want to in another sense, but we really don't want to get rid of that sin. So, <laughs> we, you know, people keep getting counseled over the same thing over and over and over. And the problem is, is that they want to hang on to what they have there. God says, stop it. You know, uh, cut it off. Mortify the things of the flesh. John Owen uh, wrote a book on mortification of sin. Boy, did he ever hit that hard. Uh, difficult read, but I will tell you, it is as practical as can be and, of course, he's one of the most doctrinal teachers that's ever lived in the body of Christ. And that's the way that he puts it. You know, there's, there's no excuse. We have sin. It's not any blame on anybody else and the culture or anything else. No, uh, if you're doing a sin, then you know what to do with it. You know what the sin is. Now, do it. Uh, and that's simple as it is. And that's the way Paul teaches. I don't see him doing any other way. Let's read this section here. And do this, knowing the time... <clears throat> that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. Well, if you're hearing Paul say this, it, you know, this is pretty pretty sudden here. It's high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. All right. I like that word time. Knowing the time. Knowing the times. We have an understanding. Every one of us here. If you're a Christian, you have an understanding of the times. The time that we live in, you have an idea of what the plan and the purpose of salvation is. You have a sketch there. You have an outline of uh, what has happened through uh, the history. God's story. His story. And where it's going, right? Now, motives are, are really are based on doctrines, like the first 11 chapters. And this would be a motive, knowing the time. If you know the time, then you want to wake out of sleep. We'll first work on this one. The time here is not a word chronos or chronology. That's a word for time in the Greek. This one is keros. 
and that means a particular time period, an age, an epoch. To us, it would be the season in which we live. The period that we are living in. This particular time. Christians, non-Christians, they are totally at odds. They have nothing in common with knowing the times. Only Christian can understand the times. Their viewpoint of time and history is going to be warped. We know this time. You you understand the time. You understand what's going on out there. We, We might say, I don't understand what's happening, how evil and sinful the world is, but yeah, you do. You know, and you and you know the reason. It's it's what sin does, and how Satan uses that, and the the whole enemy aspect. Nobody else possesses the view that you do. And whenever I say that, that's all Christians. Nobody has the same view. We, we live in an antinomian age. Yeah, it's in Christianity, but it's against the law, and against what law? Well, the law of God. And if they can get away with it, it would be against the law of the state and everything else because that's pretty well based upon God's law and, and much of it is Ten Commandments and such. If you were to listen to what the universities are saying today, it is nowhere near what your understanding of the times are. The universities have a total different view uh, you can go on to even, the, of course, the schools. How about the liberal seminaries? They have a total different understanding of the times. Of course, they don't believe in Scripture, so that's why they, they wouldn't. If if God had not spoken, we would be in the same position as they were. That's the thing. God has revealed Himself. And either you want to hear His revelation or you don't. Let them who has have ears, let them hear. Right? God has giving us, has given us a hearing. We have actually experienced His revelation through His Word, and that's why I say it's just so incredible to realize that. Um, if you if you go and let's say He has say if you say that God has not revealed Himself, and let's say if He hadn't, we have no Bible. We don't know how we get to the next spiritual realm if there's such a thing. We don't even know anything about spiritual things. So you have these universities and you have all these places of education. All they're going to do is banter about and come along with philosophies. And they're going to come up with some game of postmodernism which says, what I have is right. And the other guy says, no, what I have is right. And the other guy says, what's yours right? And we can say, well, let's just all get along together because we're all right. And the thing is, they're all wrong. But what this leads to is nihilism. Nihilism without knowledge. It means, at the end of it all, it means nothing. There is no purpose. We die, and then that's it. And so that's where one is at. Antinomian says, I don't care about God's law because there is no God, or even if there is a God, I don't care because I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to have anybody telling me what to do. And so it's easy to write God out of it. How many have heard of uh, Julian Huxley? Atheist. Big name. Uh, especially, I think, in the, in the 1950s and such. 
they, he saw no plan. A great thinker. Great thinker. So goes the world. And he held the view that everything comes by chance. It, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And there's no definite purpose in anything. Philosophers, historians, scientists, they don't understand history. And I just said historians, didn't I? They don't understand history. They can report some things and even report some things that accurately happened, but they still don't understand the history unless they have wanted to see the revelation that God has given in His Word. And they deny that. Christians understand our present time. There are two types of history. There's man's history, and that's a history that that God permits. He's in on everything. He is sovereign in it. He has total control. These, uh, this permissive will includes wars. It includes kings. It includes nations. God's guiding every one of those. He's right in on it. And they're all on the stage where God produces His great redemption story. That's the whole thing. This, everything that we're involved in is, is the redemption story. Well, the second kind of history, which is related to the first, but this gets more distinct and more determined. It's And everything is determined, but it's, it's God's planned purpose. He, he not only permits it, He produces it. He predetermines history. Predetermines history. This would make most people scream to hear this. I know, but certain things will happen at a certain time. Go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. The most important thing that ever happened as far as we're concerned, Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. When the fullness of time had come, as far as what God had in mind and had predetermined, certain things will happen at a certain time. Who starts it? God. God starts everything. He's always the initiator. God is always the cause. Scientists used to say there's a cause to what? There's a cause and then the effect. Yeah. There's always a cause for everything. But when it brings in something like there was a cause to the universe, that started creating problems. So we have the effects without a cause. And so goes science. Because that's what science is all about. That's, that is knowledge. There has to be a cause. There's a predetermined end. There's a predetermined beginning of this, of this world. But the time that we're basically talking about is the time between the first coming and the second coming. Or in the New Testament, it's usually called the last days. We're in the last days. The church, whole church period, 2,000 years since the time of Christ. You know, that's what we're saying is there is a, it's, it's a time. That's a time. That's an epic. That's a period. That's a keros. 
That's the time that we're in. We know about Christ and what He has done. And we know that He's coming back. All Christians believe in that. So if you know this, you understand a huge amount compared to the worldly thinking. It's incredible what what we know. If we understand the present time, then we understand what we're to do with our time. Now, this is where it starts getting a little tricky. What about this present time? Well, we looked in uh, look in Galatians again, but uh, go to chapter one, verse four. These things are good reminders, and it's oh yeah, that's right, that's right. Galatians one four. Grace to you and peace from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might there's our deliverance right here deliver us from this present evil age, age, keros, time, epic, period, according to the will. Are you like this? I like this last statement. According to the will of our God and Father. We are in a present evil age. That helps us to understand a lot right there. It's an evil, wicked age. But evolution says it's getting better. Things are just going to keep getting better and better. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse two. In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There's no waiting. It's now. Um, this day, this time, at this time. And that's that same word. Look in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-nine. But this I say, brethren, that the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. You better take the opportunity to minister. Your time here is going to be very short. Your time, this, this period that you're in. If we understand the present time, we will seek to lead others to Christ. We will seek to tell them what has happened, to tell them that God has revealed Himself. Because most people wouldn't know that God has actually revealed Himself. He has shown a lot. You remember whenever he revealed himself on Mount Sinai? Gave the Ten Commandments there? He spoke to a whole nation? That was quite an epic, wasn't it? And he has done that. He has been here. And he in these last days he's spoken to us through the Son. And that's the ultimate, isn't it? The person of Christ. So if we understand the time then I think it would be it makes sense what is going on, why we're at where we're at, and we know where we're going. We don't know the exact day <laughs> when you know all of this is going to come about whenever Christ comes back, and it doesn't matter what does matter it does matter in the sense I want to live my life as if he were to come back now for the fact that you know, I want to be honoring God in this this time period. It's not I'm not here just to go out and make money. I'm not here to just make a name for myself. I'm not here just to go out and have good 
times. I think that's what most of, at least the younger generation today, would be living for, to have a good time. And then you live for the next day to have a good time. You live for the weekend to have a good time. And that, so that's how they get by through this present evil age, not knowing it's even evil. And they're doing evil things whenever the weekend comes. A lot of these evil things are found in verse 12, 13, in that section. God has given us life. God has given us time. We don't have it forever. It's only a short time. Jonathan Edwards had a great sermon. And it was on this text right here where we're at in Romans 13. And it was about re- redeeming the time. Actually, I said Romans 13. It's, it was really Ephesians 5, but it's saying something along the same lines. In Ephesians 5, 16, uh, you're probably familiar with this, redeeming the time. And he says before that, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. evil. Buying up the time. Jonathan Edwards, as you know, had very pointed sermons. They made impact on people's lives. He's one of my all-time favorites. In that sermon, he had a three-point outline. One of them is considered that you are accountable to God for your time. He has given you a gift. He's given me a gift. It's called time. It's a short amount that I have to live here on this earth. Jonathan Edwards, whenever he wrote his resolutions, and he wrote... Most of those when he was 17 years old. Pinned them all down. One of them was this. He resolved never to lose one moment of time. Would you dare ever write that down? He did not ever want to lose another moment of time. Wow. (laughs) How often do you hear people telling you how bored they are? That... And and I, uh, if it's okay, Brittany, can I use uh, uh, use a witness on Facebook? Uh, quite often, from some people, and I, I've seen it quite frequently too. But you, you mentioned this on on your Facebook. How many times kids will come on there and they'll tell you how bored they are, you know, and and what they're doing, and uh, you know, it's, life seems meaningless to them, you know. And I'm wondering, are these people Christians? And then I've gotten it from, and it's it's usually from kids. Uh, um, and matter of fact, I corrected the kid one time. He was, I think he's what he's twelve years old, something like it probably. And I did it in a in a fun way. And and uh, mom got a hold of it. and She said, "Thank you for you know because just going around saying I am bored." Well, fantastic. Let me congratulate you. I'm glad you are. It sounds like you're enjoying it. <laughs> I am bored. I am bored. I'm bored. And that seems to be the motto for the day. What? They're just waiting for the next fun time they can have. And what they're doing is they're wasting the time that God has given them. Because if they're bored, they need to pick up the Word of God and peer in to some of the greatest things that could ever be offered. (laughs) Not some of the greatest, but the greatest things. Number two, Edward said, Consider how much time you have lost already. 
How much time have we wasted? Oh, boy, we're, we're all getting convicted here tonight. Everybody's going, mm. <laughs> I know what you mean. We, you know, I don't want to get into legalism, but I'm just saying I, I think that we contend. And, and what do you, how can you ever even term sometimes what is that? There is a time of relaxation. There is a time, you know, I'm not throwing that out. There is a time that God has given us to enjoy, too. So I'm not saying those things. I'm not being a spoiled sport here. And Edwards would have done it with, with, with a wisdom. Somebody said one time that if you look at all of Paul's visits, he only stayed three days. Three days? No, I mean, there's like two or three times where he visited with someone, and they said, and we stayed three days. It's time to move on. Yeah. So, so I never stay anywhere more than three days. So three days. That's okay. We can put that in writing. Legalism. Uh-huh. No. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. The third one that he said was, consider how you may improve the present time. Okay, he says, you can look back. We know we've all wasted time. We've wasted a lot of time. And I've heard a lot of people who become Christians late in their years, and they say, you know, I am sorry for all the time that I wasted. But the only thing is, I can look at it from God's viewpoint and say, well, you know what? You were not chosen before that time, and God had the perfect time anyway. (laughs) I know what they're saying when they say that. Because I know I too, in, in my young years, what you know, how much time did I did I just blow? I mean, just just totally meaningless. So, okay, <laughs> that's Edwards. That's Edwards' sermon. That, that wasn't mine, but anyway, I thought I'd bring that out. Okay, now we're going to move quickly. You ready? <laughs> and do this, do this, knowing the time. Okay, if you knew, okay, you know a little bit about this time thing now, right? Knowing the time that you live in, and it's a wicked time period, isn't it? And all the things that are going on out there, and how many lost people do we have? Maybe 2 or 3% of the people out there are lost, aren't they? Uh, 50%? 60%? 70%? 80%? I don't know. There are a lot of lost people out there. A lot of lost people. How could we improve our present time that we live in? Okay, the sleeping Christian... And do this, knowing the time. Okay, knowing this. And Paul says now that it is high time. You ever heard of that before? It's high time you start doing something. <laughs> it's high time to awake out of sleep. Man, if Paul was preaching this message, I wonder how many people get up and leave. They'd have to wake up for <laughs> Could be a couple of different people sitting here. He's writing this down, but... A lethargic condition of Christians. I'm talking about true Christians, okay? They can be lethargic, lazy. And he says, rouse yourself. Rouse yourself up. Shake yourself out of the condition that you're in. You're just drifting along. You're slacking. There's a store up here called Slackers. (laughs) Boy, what a name. (laughs) Sorry about that, guys. I'd say that so there's advertising. Many just want to be spectators. Oh, down here there's a place called spectators. <laughs> oh, we could go right up on up and down Missouri Boulevard, couldn't we? Many just want to be uh, ones who just watch. They don't want to be active. They want to watch the ones who are active, and, and that's it. You remember Jonah? He was... Uh, he wound up getting on the ship. What was he doing? 
the sleeping in that in that ship. And uh, you know, there there's the section. I think we often think where um, Jesus. It's in Matthew 26. He and the, the disciples, and he had uh, Peter, James, and John go up with him. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there to pray, and he says, "I'm going to go over here. You guys uh, stay back here, watch and uh, pray." And uh, literally, what did they do? Anyway, Christians uh, can sleep. That shows that spiritually, that's what happens. But there's unbelievers who are sleeping, and uh, you get the foolish virgins in Matthew 25, the wise and the foolish. Um, and it shows that those foolish ones were not true. They were, thought they were waiting for the bridegroom, and the fact of the matter is, is that they weren't ready. Great Awakening, the 1700s, and that's really what you had. You had a lot of sleeping unbelievers. They went to church, but there was no life there. You have Wesley, Whitfield, Edwards, and God used those guys to awaken many sleepers. And they truly came to Christ. They thought they were believers before. And uh, they came in the droves. What a revival it was. They were awakened to hear the gospel and believe it. So, wake out of sleep. Wasn't it Pilgrim's Progress? They didn't have there was one specific spot where it had all the people that had fallen asleep along the side of the road? Yes. Yes. They tried to go over and wake them up, but they wouldn't wake back up. That's right. They were lulled uh, to sleep. And they almost did, too. Yeah. I think Christian did. Get out of here. Move on, right? Move. Three days. Move on. Right. <laughs> you know, if those uh, in those times, were those preachers, um, were they like circuit preaching or something, going around to different congregations, different church buildings and doing Well, Edwards had his uh, own church yeah. uh, where he, he preached. And, uh, I mean, the whole town basically got converted and people came from all over. Uh, whereas you have um, Whitfield, who, who came from England, and they had revivals going over there already. And he'd preach out in the, in the coal, uh, coal fields, the fields you know, where the, the mines were at, and he'd be out there a leather lung. Uh, he could probably speak at Bush Stadium and make people's ears hurt. He had a, 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 just a tremendous, awesome voice that just carried. He would speak before thousands, and he would just go out in the fields... He came over to America, and uh, Wesley, they were good friends, and they moved on up from, uh, they were in Georgia, and they went on up the coastline, and they yeah. preached different churches. They'd preach every opportunity. They'd go out in the street corner, the fields, wherever it was, and they were constantly just preaching the gospel. And uh, Whitfield was very eloquent in the way that he um, was able to word his messages but uh, very profound and went directly to people's hearts. And it was a time where God's Spirit was working. And that was the men that he brought up to do that. But it, uh, we cannot make a revival happen. You'll, you'll drive by places and they'll say, Revival tonight. Revival this week. Well, I know what they mean, so I'm not jumping on it. But really a revival, and I was listening to Sproul this morning. He was talking about uh, revival and... and um, Reformation. And um, 
he was mentioning these churches have that. How can you ever make a revival happening? You know, it's through God's Spirit. He's the one that does it. He's the one that regenerates it. But usually those are, that's the Arminian thought. You know, we can um, make them convinced. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll sing just as I am 14 verses. We'll sing it a half an hour until somebody walks down the aisle. <laughs> anyway. Salvation is nearer. That's a pretty good motivation. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Do you see that every time that he says, do this, then he'll come back or he's already qualified it. Now he comes right back and he says, our salvation is nearer. And here, as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is an eschatological section. He's saying that Christ's second coming will be happening. We, we have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. Our, the salvation that we already have, believe me, it's now we're nearer the coming of the Lord than we were. That's the way that he termed it, and I, I think that would be a correct way of interpreting that. The, the great day that is coming, that is probably the greatest motivator that we have throughout Scriptures. Paul calls it the coming of our Lord and Savior, the blessed hope in the book of Titus over and over. First John, we could go on and spend the rest of the evening just looking at all the verses that talks about Christ coming back. Now do this. Peter will mention all the apostles. All the writers will have it in there. You'll see it over and over. That's a great motivation. You know, we know what he's done. How about that he's coming back? That's the time that we live in. You know, we don't want to be ashamed that his coming. First John 2:28 says that whenever he comes back to reward, we don't want to be left naked, you know, or half dressed, do we? I say that in a spiritual way, I guess. But are you living in the light of your glorification? Are you living in the light of your glorification, knowing that that will happen? Uh, verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. This is pretty simple. You know, night and day. It's, as we look out in the world, what we really realize is how dark it is. It, it's night. We, we have to see it as night. What the world calls enlightenment, and you remember that enlightenment period, and it was a good thing in a way because we were getting books. Books were being printed. Books were being published. Intelligence was happening. <laughs> but what does man do with every good thing that comes along? He distorts everything, doesn't he? But the Enlightenment made man feel better. And when you have technology, it makes man feel even better about himself. We're more enlightened than the rest of mankind ever. Look, how, We're much smarter than they were back then. Are we really? We have more technology. But what, what does that mean? Why do we need government? Well, it's because of the nature of life in this world and, and the sin and the conduct that man has. That's why you have to have government. Darkness, uh, real quick. John 3.19. We know John 3.16. We read a few verses later. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That means light came into a world that was what? Dark. In Matthew 1, I think you get the same thing where Jesus came into, was it Naphtali? And 
he came into the darkness and, and he being light lit it up, you know, in that in that sense. Uh, chapter 8, verse 12 of John. John just uses light all over the place. That's a key word. Light, life, over and over. John will use those. And that meant a lot to the Greek Gentile world that uh, he wrote so much to. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There's John. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, there's your time again, until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. There. He's talking about he's going to bring the light on the, the darkness. He's going to turn on the floodlight of a million times a million amperage and brighter than that. First Corinthians one ten. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, the same judgment. Um, what was I thinking of? No, that's not it. It didn't look like it whenever I first... Oh, well. First Peter 2.9. I know what that one is. I copied it down on But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of... Mm, from darkness into light. It's the darkness of ignorance. <laughs> that was First Peter two nine. He called us out of darkness into light. Well, that's a that's a packed verse right there in itself. That's what the fall did to man. It he was in light before, and he fell, and it cut him off from the most vital and most essential knowledge that he could have. It's not that he couldn't think anymore, but everything was tainted. And light uh, was no longer there. The light that man has is artificial until Christ comes in. It's dark in regard to God Himself, isn't it? Night represents the depravity of man. And over and over we, we see just a few verses there. The day, what does that represent? The dawning represents Christ, the light of Him. Our view of this present world, what is it? It's a condemned world. John said that. It's been condemned. It's under the wrath of God. It will be judged. All the efforts that mankind will do to try to make this place better, it can be nice for a little while. Politicians can change laws. Can change laws for the good. Be for something that we'd be in favor of, but no party will ever change it into light. It's a gospel thing. It's the thing that the Word of God does. Now let's get into a list of sins here and uh, see what happens. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Getting ready for a change of clothes, what do you do? Well, you take those old clothes off. You don't take on your new clothes and put them over your old clothes or the clothes you've been wearing, right? You take them off. Lay them aside. Throw them away. 
Put them over there. And, you know, I think sometimes Christians focal, put a focal point on their own particular sins. And, and yes, we are to examine ourselves. And if we have sin, we want to get that confessed. We want to get that taken care of and done away with. But sometimes I think a particular temptation becomes magnified to them and that's what they concentrate on rather than realizing the truth of who they are. If you're a Christian, you recognize who you are. What's the truth about yourself? I've been redeemed. I have all the power to conquer this temptation, this sin. Anyway, this is the way to overcome sin rather than just focusing on it and trying to come up with magical potions to get rid of it. It's, it's, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's not so much dealing with the sin itself, but to see yourself as who you are in Christ. Boy, that's a new one, isn't it? That's all that Paul is saying right here. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he's going to sum it up here. Put Him on. When you put Him on, He's your clothing. He is everything. There's no secret to this, is there? This is the way that Paul always said it. And he says it right here in our text. Realize the truth about yourself. That you are like uh, Bob, the Romans 8 passage, right? We are more than conquerors. Look what he's already done. No matter how holy we are, and let's say we don't have you know one particular sin that people see that we deal with, or we we say you know I'm not so sure what one particular sin is. I know I sin, but no matter how quote holy, and everybody's holy, but we are to be holy for God is holy. But sin is always dangerous. It doesn't matter with this individual who's dealing with this sin or this guy over here that's just, you know, he's in the Word of God and everything and he's always proclaiming it. Sin is always lurking at the door. It's always dangerous. And uh, that's why he starts bringing up these words. Cast off the darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. You can go to Ephesians 6 and it says put on the armor of God basically the same thing. And it's dealing with Christ. He says He's going to say later on, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, let us walk properly as in the day. As if you're in the day. If, if you're a Christian, you are in the day. Walk in the light as He is in the light. Right? He is the light. We are in that light. That's the, that's the thing about it. Christians are always in the light. The light is shining on us. And so when we have sinned, guess what? God's light has been shining on it all the time. Somebody is not a, not a believer. Although, you know, they don't see the light. They're in the darkness. Yeah. They, they li- well, John 3, it says they liked that darkness. They don't like that light when it shines on them, right? But... Um, Let us walk properly as in the day. So we're, we're in that day. We're not walking in, in the darkness. Not in reverie. The word there is komos. And it means to carouse. You ever seen, any, you ever seen anybody carouse around? Doing the carousing? You probably go up and down Missouri Boulevard and see a lot of carousing. Uh, or anywhere else for that matter. But 
it was actually originally used for victory celebrations. You know, you you won a battle, won a war, and it would turn into a drunken, immoral disorder that you know people would just celebrate. It's just like winning the Super Bowl, you know, and the whole city goes crazy. And all I remember is last time I think Philadelphia won a championship. The place went nuts and burned up cars and buildings and. That's why the Yankees, I guess, have got to go ahead and win the World Series. They're not as bad. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> they have sexual orgies, brawls associated with drunkenness. That's the kind of thing. Okay, Paul's writing to these some of these people who had behaved that way before. He says, you're a Christian now. You can't go around doing that. Make sure that you don't do that. You know, that was their lifestyle. That's what they. That's how they grew up. That's what they thought. That they knew was right. I live in a little uh, town called Taos, and in a little house, in a little house, in a little, <laughs> little Taos. And and the thing is, there's a lot of these kind of things going on. This the drunkenness and the drugs, and you know they're up and down the the road, and you know you hear of. Any had a comment about you might want to specify where this is all happening in house in house around house yeah but they do things and you know I mean they do a lot of things and and unfortunately some of them get either injured or or killed because there have been a lot of wrecks on that road that we live on it's a pretty bad road but when they're drunk and they're out of order it's um, every Friday Saturday night you can hear the sirens go off and. All sorts of things happening there, and you, everybody's familiar with that everywhere he goes. There's not anything different, but it's it's just interesting. That's the way of life. That's how they know to live life. That to them is what life's about. That's fun. That's what they look forward to. Next word is interesting, drunkenness, or the word, and I haven't figured this one out yet. If somebody could tell me, but you notice it on your sheets, it's M E T H E. Methe. Does that sound familiar to something today? You've heard of meth houses? Right? Methamphetamines. Anyway, um, whatever it does, I guess it changes one's. Um, yeah. Changes their whole way of thinking, their personality. Methe is an intentional, habitual. Intoxication. Uh, if you go to Galatians 5.21, you will see, I think, drunkenness and carousing together. 1 Peter 4.3, I think you'll get those same two words combined again. They're side by side. Drunkenness, carousing, it goes together. You get to having a drinking buddy, drinking people, drinking parties. And what do they do? Well, they do all these things. And it hasn't changed, but back in the Roman time, he was writing specifically, first of all, to those people who were who had done those things. That was their lifestyle. They thought it was right. They thought it was cool. That was the thing to do. And now Paul says, hey, the night is far spent. You did that. That time is done. You're now walking in the day. You don't do that anymore. Yeah, right. Right. 
revelry, drunkenness. Uh, next one, lewdness and lust. Your, your versions might have a different wording there, but they're meaning the same thing. Uh, sexual promiscuity would be the word there. The Greek word is koite. I don't really have to go any further with that, but um, sexual promiscuity. That, boy, does, is that ever talking about today? Sure was back then. And then another word there is lust. Um, this word is aselge. And it has the letter A before selge. A in the Greek means no. No selge. That means no restraint. There is no shame. It's, it's just to a, a shameless excess. No restraints whatsoever. Lewd sexual immorality. Uninhibited, unabashed lasciviousness. It's a debauchery, a total abandonment. Abandonment to doing whatever goes. I've been learning a lot about our society. I'm not even going to go into the details, but Carolyn was sharing with me what she heard on um, Dr. Phil. Was it Dr. Phil or was it? Yeah. And I'm not even going to tell you what was going on there, but it, it was these kind of things. But uh, we're talking little kids, little girls, little boys, 12, 13 years old. Uh, unbelievable. Um, that's the society that we're in. We're in probably right where the Romans were in. The Corinthians. To Corinthianize. Everybody knew what that meant. That was a bad name, even for the people back then in the Roman Empire. We have a Corinthian society. Debauchery. The next two words, just in case you can say, okay, I don't have any trouble with the revelry and drunkenness and the lewdness and the lust. I don't think anybody here would have that. Then it says strive and envy. <laughs> Gets into something that, oh, can hit anybody on the head there. Strive. Jealousy. Yeah. Do you have any strife going on? Well, the key aspect here, I think, is verse 14. He sums it up. And these things not um, um, what's his name? Augustine, right in the head. Because <laughs> he was living that kind of lifestyle. He was living with a woman when in his late teens, I think. 17 years old. Living with a woman. And then he had, was living that kind of lifestyle all around. Look in Philippians three, thirteen and fourteen. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing. I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's the freedom we have in Christ. If we had that kind of lifestyle, you don't have to be bound by that anymore. It's done. You say, well, am I supposed to go back and confess that, you know, every couple of weeks? And, you know, uh, hey, you're a new person now. It's done. You know, move on. Press on. Forget those things. And I'm sure that's what Paul wanted to say to these guys. You know, that lifestyle is over. Um, the night is, is far spent. Peter says something like that too, doesn't he? And he says, make no provision for the flesh. 
put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, put those clothes on. Put what you know to be right here. Put on the law of love. You're not going to do anything to hurt anybody as, as the first section here was, 8 through 10. And uh, even even for yourself for that matter. But make no provision. And, and the word for provision, the word... The three-letter word is pra, which means before. It's a forethought. He says, make no forethought for the flesh. Does this make sense? What it's saying is, don't make any planning ahead. It starts in the minds. Our sin starts right here. We start thinking about it. We dwell on it. James talks about that. And then it gives birth to sin. And we then we commit the act. The flesh is very powerful. Don't underestimate the power of the flesh because it can bring to fruition the sin that is thought of in the mind. And now we're talking about any sin. We're not just talking about all these sexual sins, which I don't think anybody here would really be relating to this. And, and if you are, well, you know, it, I mean, that's that can be a common thing, I guess, in that sense. But He's saying here, I don't care who you are, what kind of alcohol problem, what kind of drug problem, what kind of, name it, you know, sexual sins and whatever. If you think it here in the mind and you're dwelling on it, guess what's going to happen? The flesh is a man left to himself. That's the way that it's been worded. It's the natural man. The flesh is the human nature. The flesh is the humanness of us. Make no provision for the natural man. You have a new man. You're battling against the flesh. One way it's stated is uh, don't feed the flesh. It's hungry. And if you feed it, just make it into a feeding frenzy and want more and more, right? Put yourself out. Uh, Make no provision for self. Our self likes to do things. Our flesh likes to do things. Isn't going to line up with God's holiness. We put on Christ, and then we make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust, to bring it to its completion, to fulfill those desires. And it was um, it was stated as this. Jones, I think, put it like this: What is putting on Christ? He had four thoughts on this. Put on doctrine concerning our Lord. Put on the truth. Put on the belt of truth. But he said, put on doctrine concerning our Lord. Number two, follow His example. Where he says, you know, we are to follow Christ, right? Number three, deliberately partake of Him or rely upon Him. Totally throwing yourself on Him, trusting Him in every way. Putting on Christ. And a fourth one was hide in Him. Hide in Christ. That reminds me of Colossians. These are just practical things here, aren't they? Colossians 3. For you died. Colossians 3.3. 3. For you died. Uh, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died. See, that is a motivation for us. Here's what happened in the past. Here's where we're at now. We're in Christ. We're hidden. And here's what's going to happen in the future. 
when Christ, who is our life. Do you like that one? He is our life. That's amazing. When He appears, when He comes back, then you also will appear with Him, (laughs) my, in glory. Man, any kind of sin, whether it be anger. Uh Uh-oh, getting too close there, Dennis. (laughs) Because we all battle with anger, don't we? Next time you, you think about getting angered, think on this verse here. What is that little bit of anger that you have that doesn't represent Christ? And how does that compare with the glory that we're going to have when we appear with Him? Wow. Is that a motivation? Positive note. That's how you beat sin. Paul says it over and over. This is just one little text right here. I don't think there is any kind of secret whatsoever. I think the Lord revealed it here. It's all here. And if people just take the time to get into the Word and live that out, they might find a change happening. I think this is where it's at.